Welcome to the Global Decolonization Initiative podcast. I am your host, Tanya Rodriguez, and I'm here with Peggy Ayers, who is a social justice activist and author of Ancient Spirit Rising, which came out a couple of years ago and is gaining traction as awareness of the harm of cultural appropriation is being widely scrutinized at greater and greater numbers as the world wakes up to the realities of uh, the harm of colonization and white privilege. Peggy is a strong voice bringing awareness to decolonization, allyship with First Nations, bioregionalism, authentic white identities, and she brings great wisdom to our podcast and you today. Hi, Peggy. Hi, Tanya. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate being here with you today. Oh, thank you for being here. appreciate your wisdom, and I look forward to uh, our conversation today. Today, we'll be discussing a few topics. We've, we have the Global Uprising Report, and our subject is, what's up with all these white shamans? And of course, we'll be bringing you the GDI Cocotazo of the Week and the GDI Shoutout of the Week. And this week, we'll be introducing our Philanthropy Corner. So stay tuned. It's about to get real. Global Uprising Report. Today, we bring you Hong Kong which has been uprising since the 15th of March, 2019, uh, with 222 days in a large-scale breakout. Initially, protesters solely demanded the withdrawal of the extradition bill following an escalation in the severity of policing tactics against demonstrators on the 12th of June. The objective of the protesters has been to achieve the following five demands under the slogan, five demands, not less. A complete withdrawal of the extradition bill from the legislative process, retraction of the riot characterization, release and exoneration of arrested prisoners, establishment of an independent commission of inquiry, into police conduct and use of force during the protests, and resignation of Carrie Lam and the implementation of universal suffrage for legislative council elections and for the election of the chief executive. Iran. Anti-government protests in Iran, uh, specifically in Tehran, over the shooting down of the plane with 178 souls has been met with live ammunition from police forces to disperse the protesters. Though Iran state media did not cover this weekend's protests, images and cell phone videos shared on social media has amplified the message of civilian anger. So, too, have public figures who have spoken out online at great personal risk. Oscar-nominated Tarane Alidosti, Iran's most popular female actor, took to Instagram on Sunday to bluntly criticize the government, telling millions of followers that Iranians were not citizens but captives. 
I fought this dream for a long time and I didn't want to accept it. We are not citizens. We never were. We are captives, she wrote. Ultimately, the Islamic Republic is under pressure because people really do want accountability and transparency. Perhaps Iran's government spokesman described the situation best in a commentary published in the semi-official FARS news agency. Ali Rabi said that the regime's delayed admission to downing the plane has irreparably damaged the relationship between us and our nation. The question now is what will Tehran do about it? Italy's Sardines movement is calling a mass demonstration to squeeze out Salvini, according to The Observer. Angela Guifrida writes, The Sardines, an Italian movement that has emerged in response to the far-right politics of Salvini and his allies, is gearing up for a major demonstration ahead of crucial elections in the left-wing stronghold of Emilia Romangana in late January. The movement, funded in mid-November by a group of four friends from Bologna in response to Salvini's threat to liberate Emilia Romagna from the left, has attracted a huge following with thousands of supporters cramming into piazzas across the country in recent months. The next show of strength is planned for Bologna next Sunday, a week before a regional election that is seen as an important test for the stability of the national government coalition between the center-left Democratic Party and the Five Star Movement. The precarious alliance came together last summer after Salvini's League Party was forced out of government following his failed attempt to force snap elections. In America... Three suspected members of a neo-Nazi hate group were arrested by the FBI and that the men were in possession of weapons and had discussed traveling to Monday, January 20th's rally in Richmond, Virginia. Tens of thousands of people are showing up to a pro-gun rally held on Virginia's state capitol on Monday, according to the New York Times. Ralph Northam, the governor of Virginia, tweeted, We have received credible intelligence from our law enforcement agencies of threats of violence surrounding the demonstration planned for January 20th. This includes extremist rhetoric similar to what has been seen before major incidents such as Charlottesville in 2017. Neo-Nazi groups are calling the rally a boogaloo, which is a term indicative of the beginning of the next civil war. Wow. Lots of uprisings against governments, people uprising against legislation. There's a lot going on in the world and in America. Um, Fortunately, all these flames that are starting to burn brighter and brighter, uh, hopefully, will show us the light of humanity and uh, bring us to a place where we can join together instead of continue to be divided. 
Speaking of light and love, we have a lot to talk about today, Peggy, um, with regards to the harm of shamanism, white shamanism, the New Age movement, uh, and also uh, bringing awareness of the the ego traps, so to say, of <laughs> those things. I have been absolutely devouring your book. It is so good in so many ways, and I'm really excited to uh, dive into what what brought you to the place that you're at where you're such a outspoken and powerful voice to bring awareness to the harm of cultural appropriation and the taking from uh, indigenous communities. I love how you say IK. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've coined that, but I love it. It's a great and wonderful uh, explanation, and I completely understand it, and I identified with it immediately. So uh, please, Peggy, it's all it's it's all you. <laughs> Let's Thank hear you, it. Tanya. Give it to Thank us. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. Like there was a beginning uh, in the beginning, there was quite an impulse to um, research all these themes when I got going with my writing of Ancient Spirit Rising. And uh, it was three years in the writing of that book. And it was sort mm-hmm. of provoked at the very beginning. I'm lucky to live in a territory of the uh, Mississauga Ojibwe people. And there's three First Nation reserves in my area in the watershed here of the Otonabee in uh, the Kawarthas area of uh, Canada. And there's this wonderful elders conference every year, like an elders gathering. And about, I guess it was eight years ago, I was attending and I heard one amazing elder. He just came out with a very simple statement and he said, everyone needs to return to their own indigenous knowledge. And that really got me going on this huge exploration. You know, I was so taken by this simple statement, and he was kind of giving us a blessing. He was saying we all do have Indigenous knowledge, which I guess to a lot of people is a bit of a revelation. (laughs) And, Hmm. you know, of course, he was also commenting on the fact that there's so much cultural appropriation going on. And even in my own community, I had been noticing, you know, a lot of white people with Native names, and they're dressing up as Native people and they're offering services as, you know, as sweat lodges and all sorts of other like new age practices. So I was already very shocked, you know, by those people. So it was the perfect time to sort of delve into it. And in the the beginning, I didn't really know I was writing a book. I just had to like, I was just compelled to sort of investigate. And so after, you know, pages and pages of writing, I'm like, okay, now I have a book. (laughs) <laughs> and then it really got up to like 420 pages and I'm like okay you gotta stop now because I have this huge book so it's been quite a good journey and um, the publishing process was really exciting and it's been quite thrilling to get it out there and the book covers a lot of um, different you know subjects to do with cultural appropriation but really it's just sort of a subset 
of that larger conversation that is um, white supremacy, the racism that makes cultural appropriation possible. And it's white people just feeling uh, the entitlement to help, help themselves, help ourselves. I have to include myself in that because I'm white of Scots Gaelic descent. That's kind of a mistake we make sometimes to go they, whereas it's me, it's, you know, I'm included in the group. Mm. And so just this mistake that, you know, white people have been making, and it really points to a lack of white cultural identity. We really have lost spiritual traditions and cultural foundations as white people. So, you know, locating them is our challenge, but it certainly does. It's not too involved, you know, appropriating from other groups. That's just completely morally uh, reprehensible. Mm. I love how um, page 58 is uh, the the chapter, Lifting Indigenous Knowledge and Inventing Identity. Native people do not use the label shaman. And um, one of the in one of the paragraphs, it says cultural exchange and uh, Native people do not use the label shaman from uh, New Age frauds and plastic shamans. The one of the a, a couple of things that really um, gripped me reading this was cultural exchange and cultural adaptation is a good thing. And knowledge is consistently shifting and changing, but cultural appropriation occurs when a power imbalance is in play from centuries of racism and imperialism, and there is a relationship between a dominant and subordinate culture. Yeah, that's a really good definition. Mm-hmm. It was. Yeah. I, I, it is. Mm-hmm. Because that, that pretty much says it. It's, it's that um, the privilege of being able to take because one can, because the culture doesn't have a voice or the resources or to say no. And and so their only choice is to get taken advantage of. Yeah, and it's kind of like the last chain, like the, uh, the settler colonial agenda is a sort of a set of steps that starts off with, you know, claiming the land, uh, then claiming the resources, and then the final right. thing to decimate the people, you know, beyond uh, outright genocide, assimilation, residential schools, oppression and all those things is to the final link in the chain is to take the indigenous identity itself so unbeknownst to all these innocent you know happy-go-lucky new agers they're actually participating in the colonial genocide they're taking you know the identity of first nations people who are still just more recently in you know recovering their own cultural traditions and their own um spiritual practices it's only been maybe in the last 20 or 30 years that you know people have come out under the blanket you know of genocide to even you know start their own practices and you know you know be published and it, you know this is a fairly recent phenomenon but meanwhile white people have been oblivious you know to that healing journey so it's just been sort of a, a take 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 um attitude and really really bad timing you know, our only attitude to, is really to just step back, 
find our own traditions and give Indigenous people and First Nations people the time and the space they need to do their healing because that's going to take, you know, quite a few more decades to recover. Mm. I mean, it's only been recent. I mean, the 60s scoop just happened, you know, 50 years ago. That's very, very recent. And uh, some human rights uh, events, um, you know, um, advances only happened like 20 years ago. So this is all really, really new in terms of healing for First Nations and not a good time for white people to be jumping in. Really a bad time. Right. How how you say um, uh, Indians stress over and over that there are absolutely no conditions that make it acceptable for a non-Native person to assume a Native identity and become a, in quotes, cultural ambassador of First Nations indigenous knowledge to other white people. Um, and and that uh, white pseudo-shamans are the object of ridicule and derision by First Nations people. You, know, you go on to write, if you don't believe this to be true, then I would suggest following the work of indigenous activists and organizations that monitor cultural appropriations such as uh, neo-age frauds and plastic shamans, native appropriations, examining representations of indigenous people, or F-A-I-R media for a couple of days. And um, and the contemporary overuse of shaman or shamanic to describe a wide array of practices, attitudes, and mystical experiences has rendered it almost meaningless. That is so powerful. Mm -hmm. And if modern shamanic practitioners actually took the time to find out, they would learn that the vast majority of Turtle Island First Nation individuals are strongly opposed to the use of the term shaman by any white person. And and I've been saying um, recently a lot, and I've been sharing recently a lot, how the term shaman or shamanic has been desacralized. Definitely. And I mean, that's not to say there aren't the practitioners in Indigenous societies, whether it's a Curandera or there's so many names in the original languages, you know, that cover those practices, you know, the oracle powers or the healing powers. And there's another range of um, things that a a so-called shaman does. But the word shaman is only unique to uh, two particular First Nations in Siberia. And right. so that word shaman was taken all over the world by white anthropologists and ethnologists and sort of imposed on indigenous groups themselves, like in Brazil and so on, all over the world. But it's a word that only applies to two groups in Siberia. And they're the only two groups that are really entitled to use that particular word. I mean, here in Anish- Anishinaabe territory, that word was never part of their original language. And if someone uses it in a conversation, shaman, uh, the Anishinaabe people just look at, look at you like, what are you talking about? That isn't a word <laughs> we use. It isn't a word we, we identify with. And it's just a red flag. It means that there's a bunch of new age, happen, new age um, ideology happening, you know, not a good thing. I love how you mentioned that the First Nations also view the promotion or marketing of shamanic healing 
uh, in any context to be extremely egotistic and a hubristic gesture of elitism and a sign of disrespect to the genuine knowledge keepers. That's so powerful, Peggy. That really is. I know it's all whitewashing. Tear is a good word. Or Columbusing. That's another good word. Right. I'm kind of taking the knowledge and sort of suit yourself. And I've seen so many of these books and articles and practitioners and workshops. And it's just so shocking and so demeaning to the original group. And um, really a complete, um, you know, just making it up as they go, right? Mm. And I love Making how, it up. Well, I mean, like this book to me is like you, you're, you're calling out. You're calling out white people mm-hmm. for white peopling. <laughs> yeah, that's another good one. I love that. You know, I mean, it's white like, people. come on. You know, when when you when you get into the meat of it and you start to really um, get hard hitting, so that people mm-hmm. that read your book can start to unpack the severity of assuming a native identity. The severity of harm that brings yes. in when they're not native to assume a native identity. It's um, I love how you really break it down, and, and it says it's considered an act of racism, aggression, yeah. and domination when a new age shaman in quotes refutes or ignores the requests or demands from First Nations to stop with their cultural appropriation. Even if the false shamanic, in quotes, identity has been perpetuated for years and the practitioner has an established business, they need to stop aligning with the racist policies of colonialism and white knowledge domination, shifting into the authentic earth-connected wisdom traditions of one's own ancestors and offering that EIK or European indigenous knowledge to one's cultural group is not such a difficult thing and would be a blessing to all those involved. I mean, like, that's exactly it. It's all based in racism. Yes. And I laugh because, you know, they've spent 10 or 20 or 30 years, or even 40 years in the case of the original shamanic practitioners, 50 years. When did Michael Harner and Sandra Ingraman get going? But I kind of laugh because of all that time and effort that went into building a shamanic identity, you know, people could easily spend time building an identity based on their own, you know, ancestral traditions. So, I mean, they did it once. Why not? Why couldn't they do it a second time? It's very creating. If you're going to create an identity, you've already done it once. Why not do one that's authentic? It just kind of makes me laugh, right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's almost like a, like a, a sad laugh cry, <laughs> sad, a sad laugh cry, because it's like, come on, you know, mm-hmm. like, you're, you're, t- you're, it's like people that are doing the, sh- the shaman work that are not from uh, Siberia or Mongolia are not, not from those tribes of a birthright lineage where shaman is native are touting and advertising um, teachings to bring people into authenticity when they themselves are not being authentic 
at their core. It's it's like this fake authenticity that is being bought and sold uh, in bulk. And people that are unwilling or don't know how to lean into their own uh, authenticity because yes. we're everything's so capital, you know, the with the media yes. and the, you know, this is this is what it looks like. This is what people look like in the magazine, and this is what people look like in real life. And it's and it's almost <laughs> like we're being fed this fake authenticity, which shamanin yes. seems to align with that fake authenticity. It's almost like a a, a photoshopped spirituality yeah and you know the harm that is done to first nations is the first concern but the second thing i always look at is it's really just a statement on white identity because we've been so um stripped from spirituality i mean we've moved away from uh, organized religion and as a group here on turtle island we don't really have spiritual spiritual life Mm. until the hippies started kind of getting it going again and we don't really have a, a con- cohesive culture. So our culture is like consumerism. It's the um, entertainment industry. It's some literature, some things you may, you know, qualify as culture. But we don't have a definitive culture embedded in the land, which is really what uh, the true definition of culture would be. So white people are lacking that. We're lacking spirituality. We're lacking culture. And so as the hippies got going, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, they sort of latched on and glommed on to uh, indigenous traditions that they saw around them. But what they should have perhaps been thinking is where is our own indigeneity, where is our own ancestral tradition and our own wisdom and sort of, you know, find a path back. You know, it might be... um, having to go back quite a few centuries, you know, like even to a pre-colonial time. But if we're going to do this work with a sense of ethics or like having a moral code, you know, that's the work we're being directed to do. And it's, um, you know, it's not that difficult. It is challenging, but there's definitely ways to, you know, get going on that work. And there's different people already doing that work. There's lots of role models for us. So there's no excuse, I mean, for cultural appropriation anymore. There's a, a lot of ways to find your own authenticity and to sort of not, you know, to stop this orphan syndrome. I think that's a really good wow. description of where white people are at. We're just cultural, we're cultural and spiritual orphans. And we really have yeah. to, you know, address our own void. And we just can't be filling it with appropriating from other peoples and other groups. It's just not working. Wow. With regards to pay-to-pray ceremonies, right? And and I and I know that you write about how, um, as a genuine community uh, elder, would not be participating in pay-to-pray ceremonies. Mm-hmm. That they're not, you know, real Native elders do not charge exorbitant fees for workshops mm-hmm. or ceremonies or sessions. And that is an indicator, an indicative of uh, pan-Indian uh, New Age right. circuit. So would that yes. be something that can be a red flag for people that are just discovering 
their spiritual journey as a way to say, all right, well, this person isn't operating on all cylinders and, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're more taking than they are giving back. And so that would be like a red flag for people. Well, I think so. And it's uh, kind of complicated here because these are not really my direct observations. I've had so many amazing First Nations teachers and, you know, I made a few mistakes and I still do, you know, I've been called out in in the past. And uh, what I primarily learned was that there's quite a difference between the authentic teachers and um, Indigenous teachers that are from their own communities, they're helping their own communities. Mm. So just the division within um, the perceptions within First Nations themselves, and I've always felt a little, um, not that comfortable speaking about it, but um, you do have to be careful, you do have to do your research, and there are some really, really good teachers, and there's some teachers that are just um, kind of uh, affiliated themselves with New Age spirituality. So it takes a bit of, you know, getting immersed in this material to sort of be more discerning and find out who's who. But there are people doing a lot of harm. And I think there are First Nations people out there being denounced by their own communities. Mm. So it's quite a minefield. You really have to do your research. And that organizing organization you mentioned earlier uh new age frauds and plastic shamans that's a really good resource to go to um i know there's been some controversy about that organization but but still if you can if you really um have questions about someone you can always go there and see if there's a profile on them and you do not want to have a profile with new age frauds and plastic shamans you really don't (laughs) yeah they're but they don't. Anyway. They give no fucks. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they give no fucks. They don't care. And I love that yes. because we need we need we need that. And mm-hmm. and like you said, it is a minefield. And they're a wonderful organization. Mm-hmm. Like without New Age frauds and plastic shamans, it'd be it'd be just like a it'd be so hard to to uh, make decisions out there. They're a fantastic watchdog organization really really I really respect their work Mm. so much and also uh, one of the things that um, my grandmother shared with me is uh, if you're if somebody says I'm of this tribe and this lineage and a medicine person and this and that Mm -hmm. she said call the tribal office yeah that's call the tribal office and find out (laughs) <laughs> yeah, she, I have called. I have called the tribal office of a few different places to check in mm-hmm. on people, and 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 they they call me back, and 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 we talk, and and the 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 answer always. And I have not had one legitimate person that I checked in with with the tribal office where they go, oh yeah, that's one of ours. Uh uh-uh. uh. Wow. None of them. Yeah. None of them. And they all. I know. And they all. Yeah. The the main thing is, um, we know who our medicine people. And are. there are so many frauds and pretendians, you know, out there doing so much harm, uh, or someone will claim to have a uh, First Nations heritage, and then it turns out that they actually don't. So there's so many people fabricating all sorts of 
you know, nonsense about their own identity. They're sucking people in and they're causing so much harm. I mean, look at um, the people that died in the sweat lodge with that uh, um, new ager. What was his yeah, name? Yeah, yeah. He who um, shall not be named. Oh, J-A-R was his, his initials. <laughs> I have it right in front of me. Ugh, like we that, could name names like oh man yeah, there's been yeah. so many it's like a tsunami and the disturbing thing know. is like yeah. they keep coming like every day i'll see a new one on social media or you know on a website or if you scroll through new age frauds and plastic shamans and they like they just don't stop coming i mean you could have a full-time right. job calling these people out mm-hmm. so i mean the education is so important like to sort of get the this whole you know idea of of the harm and how you need to find your own indigeneity as a white person if we can you know keep educating hopefully you know the younger generations are going to start getting it because there are so many it's just so shocking and really kind of depressing in a way that there are so many it is it is it's just i love huge uh, yeah, pardon me. <laughs> I'm just so excited. I'm like, ah, blah, 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 there's so much to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the things that I love about the new generation is that authenticity is so big. Yes. And um, identity, like mm-hmm. true identity is is a huge part of the youth and the next generation that's coming in. And so I think that that by us bringing in uh, really loud awareness to uh, what this looks like, it it aligns with what's happening with the youth today. Yes. And bringing awareness to people accepting who they are right. for who they are and not trying to pretend to be someone else. Yes. But because they're afraid to unpack the the you know the who the who of of who they are you know yes and it's a really exciting movement because people are shifting away from empire and capitalism and they really want to live Mm. you know immersed in nature again and have an earth emergent community and just sort of you know reject all those horrible western toxic principles we've had to live under with our disconnect from nature and so on so that brings in a you know quite a lot of ambiguity because we are on stolen lands you know how do white people reconnect with nature through animism and rites of passage work and you know i think every human being needs to get bonded to the land um but we have to really steer clear of appropriating and we have to respect and honor the first nations that came before and the epistemologies that are in the landscape there's spirits there that may or may not be welcoming to white people. Right. And then the other ambiguity is how do we bring our spirits from, say, um, you know, Celtic lands, do they come with us, you know, to Turtle Island? So these are other subjects that are kind of unresolved right now. But I think the main impulse to reconnect with nature, be, be part of the land, do the rewilding and, you know, love the earth again and just sort of move away from empire is a really amazing um, impulse for a lot of young people right now and as they're you know reformulating their identity as not being part of the capitalist paradigm they're redoing their identity as being an earth connected person Mm. 
And then First Nations can be our teachers and our leaders, perhaps. Absolutely. You know, it's just, you know, all this is sort of like at the cutting edge. I don't think there's too much resolution for a lot of these questions right now. But young people are definitely moving toward the land and and moving away from uh, consumerism and imperialism and Western thinking. Western thinking is so toxic, we have to move away from it. Absolutely. And a part of that Western thinking, um, I love um, the quote from Andrea Smith you have in uh, Taking Without Giving Back, where... Um, where where Andrea says white women are ostentatiously looking for in Native American cultures, this phenomenon leads me to suspect that there is a more insidious motive for latching onto Indian spirituality. Mm. When white feminists see how white people have historically oppressed others and how they are coming very close to destroying their earth, they often want to disassociate themselves from their whiteness. They do this by opting to become Indian, in quotes. Mm-hmm. In this way, they can escape responsibility and accountability for white racism. Of wow. course, white feminists want to become only partly Indian. They do not want to be part of our struggles for survival against genocide. And they do not want to fight for our treaty rights or an end to substance abuse or sterilization abuse. They do not want to be to do anything that would tarnish their romanticized notions of what it means to be an Indian. While New Agers may think that they are escaping white racism by becoming Indian, in quotes, they are, in fact, continuing the same genocidal practices of their forebears. Holy Yeah, that moly. is so true. Absolutely true. And that's been the most shocking thing, you know, as I finally was able to, you know, use a lot of critical thinking, unpacking what's been going on in the New Age world with all the delusion and the narcissism and the spiritual bypassing, just all these really, really delusional behaviors. But the worst, you know, to me, the most shocking was this lack of interest in, you know, current systemic realities and how... We could all have a role to play in social justice, how change actually does happen, you know, through political process sometimes, but a lot through grassroots efforts and, you know, just protests in the street, any kind of social justice action. And so New Agers, that's like the last thing they want to be bothered with. And they kind of even have this, you know, looking down their noses at people that are out actually you know, doing this work. And that's what I found the most shocking was, you know, to take the indigenous knowledge and yet go back to their white bubble and not want to even help indigenous people in any way in solidarity or as an ally. And that I just found completely reprehensible. Like that, that to me, you know, is um, what makes me the most angry about all of this. So mm. I just can't fathom the uh, the narcissism of that particular attitude. I just don't get it. How um, you have a section on white privilege. And the section starts off with a really great quote by Aaron Wunker. You've got these best, you got the best quotes in this book. It is. 
It's so cool. And it says, I I benefited from colonialism (laughs) long before I understood what the word meant. And with white privilege, um, how... We all can understand, those of us that have been uh, walking in, unpacking our colonial privilege and and understand how uh, white privilege comes into play. How can people begin to shift out of uh, using their white privilege as a way to take space? from indigenous people and BIPOC uh, to using one's white privilege to protect uh, indigenous communities and mm-hmm. BIPOC. How do you how do you see that happening? Yeah, I just personally I just keep going back to the directive, you know, the strong First Nations women that that taught me um, a lot was happening during the Idle No More era. I mean, Idle No More is still happening, but when it first got going, there was so much dialogue between um, strong First Nations women and other groups that were learning at the time. And, you know, the whole thing is to just, you know, go by those allyship allyship framework mm-hmm. and sort of... Um, you know, support First Nations and sort of take a back seat. Mm. But to use uh, white privilege in a productive way is to, you know, what I was really hearing from um, the strong First Nations women was to teach other white people. I mean, the burden shouldn't be falling on um, black and indigenous people of color to do all of this um, teaching. And we also, as a group of white people, it's our ancestors that created racism and white supremacy created the problem in the first place so why isn't it our group that should be the ones to take on all the labor of dismantling it you know why should it fall on you know the oppressed people to do all of the work mm-hmm. this toxic system affects all of us so white people are just as um in the end we're going to you know get just as completely um can i say the word fucked over Oh, yeah. <laughs> By white supremacy, racism, and the whole system is toxic for everyone. But because our ancestors created it, we're the ones that should primarily be working to unpack it, to dismantle it, to do the hard work, and to educate. So I think the first thing that needs to happen is this education. Mm. And what First Nations are telling us, and I've heard it from so many different elders and cultural creatives and activists. Um, They're telling us, you know, educate your own white cohort because it's not just our burden. You you know, you have to go out and educate your own people. And so I think if we all started taking that on in little ways, you know, medium-sized ways, huge ways, just educate. You know, there's so many things that um, we can be teaching each other as white people. And then to reach this critical mass of where everybody's sort of finally gets it Mm. at some point Mm. but i know that that's what guides me is just this idea to keep educating Mm. what do you think is the fear of holding back uh that level of education amongst white people the the almost um it's 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 almost like this 
uh, repulsion of learning the truth. Oh, I know. It just seems to be this... um uh, well, Robin D'Angelo identified it. She's written quite a number of mm. books. She's fabulous. She gives lots of TED Talks and so on. She was the first one to kind of identify this white fragility. Mm. And for some strange reason, white people freak out or they just have this very uh, lack of ability to, to just be able to talk about racism. It's just this weirdest phenomena, and uh, yeah, they take it personally. They're like, but yeah, you know, and like, it, there's a checklist too. You know, I'm a good person. Mm-hmm. You don't know me. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a thousand denials. Like I've kept track of so many of them. They're like some of them are like amusing. I even fill ten pages in my book about these types of denials and oh, yeah. derailments because they're just so. Some of them are so funny like are you kidding that's that's funny but you know one of my favorite parts (laughs) black humor (laughs) yeah white people will come up with thousands and thousands of ways to evade um having to face their own racism Mm. Um, it's amazing how not all i mean i'm generalizing because there's a lot of really wonderful people i'm encountering every day i'll meet someone else you know maybe on social media or whatever and they'll just be Oh, I want to learn more. And, you know, I've always sensed this about uh, white people, and I really need to learn and delve into this. So, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, that little bit of education. And I think it takes a day or two. Like, it is pretty shocking if you've lived all your life in a bubble, and then all of a sudden you find out you're in this white supremacist society. That's a bit of a shock. For two or three days, you walk around, like, really discombobulated. And then, okay, so every single aspect of my world is white supremacist, and then, oh, um, my own whiteness and my own culpability, my own complicity. So that takes another couple of days to sort of, you know, you don't want to be uh, dwelling in shame or guilt because that's really unproductive. But, you know, you slowly emerge from the shock of it. Personally, when I first learned these things, like 12 years ago, it took me three days. I was in in this really weird state of, like, my whole worldview shifted and it was not a really good three days. Like I was so going through all these different emotions, but hmm. I just kind of snapped out of it. And I thought, well, you know, the only really good response here is just to sort of um, take responsibility. Like all these emotional wow. responses are kind of mm. useless. It's not about your guilt. It isn't about mm. your fear. That's, like, that's just sort of like centering whiteness all over again, right? It is. And so I just thought, let's just move into a place and just dispassionate let's take the emotion out of it Uh it's not about me it's about what my ancestors did and you know I wasn't personally around at the time but I have lots and lots of responsibility to make it right Mm -hmm. but you know just keep the emotion out of it I I really try to um, stress that when I'm getting really intense uh, blowback from white people like don't take it so personally you know, it isn't white skin we're objecting to. It's white supremacy and systemic racism. It's two different things, right? <laughs> that is so big. Yeah. Because anybody, it seems that anybody that speaks out about uh, New Age or um, calls out white privilege or you know, brings awareness to the disparity, um, there's the 
the thing that comes in. Oh well, you hate white people, and it's like no, no, that's that's that is not it at all. No, not at all. <laughs> it's it's the you know how do we dismantle uh, white supremacy exactly so that all people can benefit. Yes, and not just some. That's right. One group should not be in charge. That's just morally wrong. Mm. Mm-hmm. And even yep. on the medicine wheel, you see there's a white, red, black, and yellow section. White people mm. have considered are considered positive. We have wonderful attributes, as do the red people, as do the black people, as do the Asian people, if you see it on the medicine wheel. And we're all in this circle of equality and equity, and we all have something to bring to that right. sacred circle. And white skin is beautiful, right? So is round skin. Every human being is beautiful. And we all have, um, we aren't just, you know, a physical being. We all have a beautiful spirit inside of us. So we've just been so impacted by this horrible colonial toxicity that we kind of forget all these things. But it's the systemic realities that we're fighting, not the actual people. Except when the people are not are not getting it. <laughs> right. Anyway, you know you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and everybody knows what you mean. That's listening yeah, to this podcast right now. <laughs> Speaking of confusing, um, one of the things that I hear a lot of uh, New Agers confuse, and and I, I was really really. Uh, I was really happy to see this in your in your book is uh animism yeah and a a lot of people confuse animism with shamanism Hmm. and shamanism with animism Mm -hmm. and and they don't see that they're two very different things and kind of um paint it with the same brush and so um can you Share with us how to differentiate between animism and shamanism. Yes, well, I think what got going was so many progressive, uh, so many progressive people in social justice, white people. We were so concerned about this word shaman, and there's been so many dialogues I've been involved in. What is the alternative term? Okay, so we want to kind of keep our earth connective practices going. So what can we use instead of shaman and shamanic? So the word animism came up so many times as a really good substitute. And I personally, mm-hmm. myself, I, se- I self-identify as a Celtic animist. Mm-hmm. And animism is really just the immersion in the landscape. Everything's alive and speaking to us. Uh, all indigenous societies all over the world are animist. They do not have one god, or monotheism would be totally alien to an Mm. indigenous society, including those in old Europe. And so everything's alive and speaking, and we have a multiplicity of deities. I don't even like the word deity, but more like an earth spirit. The mountain Mm. can be a spirit, whatever is in our own territory. And then there's these living spirits that do communicate. Um, There's so many stories all over the world of you know, um, plants and animals, elements, the air, wind, fire that communicate with us. And over the centuries, of course, the clan system is based on 
the animals here in the Anishinaabe epistemology in the area I live. So there's the clansism of the um, bear, the wolf, and so on. And those uh, creatures are our teachers. We actually learn from the animals all these attributes that we need to smarten up and emulate as human beings because we're kind of pathetic, right? We're not quite as um, evolved as the animals because they're in total harmony with their environment. And we really aspire mm. to that. So it's a complete reversal of the way the Western world looks at nature. But um, shamanic pra- the shamanic role is someone in the community, or I personally think it's the entire community. That's where I disagree with um, the common definitions of the shaman. I think everyone in the whole uh, tribe would have been shamanic, if you want to you know, use that word. So everyone had these powers of telling the future. They would look at their dreams. They would see different things in the landscape, telling them what to do. They could do remote viewing. They could communicate communicate with the dead. They could um, get messages from uh, the air and the wind and the clouds. They could perform what we would call magic and so on. I just think some people in the community were a little better at it than others, maybe more um, better at healing and so on. But animism would be the whole world that uh, the indigenous culture lives in, whereas the medicine person or the curandera or the shaman would be uh, more of a focused healer within that community, either doing spiritual healing or bodily, physically, uh, physical healing, which would actually be, you know, two sides of the same coin for them. And then, of course, they lived in worlds that were completely integrated. There was no such thing as spiritual and cultural the way we divided. It was all one uh, system altogether. Mm. Yeah, but there is confusion between those two terms. But uh, animism is the, is the culture and the shaman is someone within that culture with special gifts. Right. And um, animism is global and shamanism is from a specific culture uh the word shaman is yeah yeah i just use it i see there there you see i was using it over and over just as a convenience that's how easy it I, is. I should have used a word from my own uh scots gaelic culture <laughs> instead of the word shaman and every culture in the world had healers but right. they weren't called shamans they had their their names in their own languages for these people. Absolutely. And that's what, that's one of the things that we bring awareness to with people that have latched on to the word shaman is yes. to discover and find and do the work to yeah. uh, look into one's own ancestry and find the word for the medicine person in your culture. Mm-hmm. And if you want to, um, if you identify with healing in that way, then connect with your ancestors yeah. whose uh, mysteries, I guess, that we carry in our DNA. Absolutely. That, that were the medicine people of the cultures that, as, as, you, as you shared earlier, that people were orphaned from. Yes, exactly. Um, I'd like to touch on uh, a couple of things because I think something just happened that was really amazing, that it was so easy to shift back into the convenience of the word. 
I know. And then, yeah, <laughs> and, and, I, and I don't want to, I don't want to let that go so easy because I think that that was a really powerful example to see, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with as much work and with as much things, you know, that, that can be done, it, it, it does slip back in. So it's a oh, for constant sure. self evaluation, a self analysis, a self check to, yes. um, to, to shift out of that uh, brain patterning that mm-hmm. keeps the word so easily accessible through convenience, which yes, which essentially is what it is. And I think that, and I'm glad that you caught yourself in that. And um, I'm sure everybody listening appreciates it too. I'm sure there's <laughs> a lot funny, of people like, that were I, like, what I the fuck? I never use the word shaman anymore, ever. Like, I never, never, never say that word. But you just did. And I don't write no, it. I think it's because we were unpacking it. So I was kind yeah, of like yeah, comparing because you said, what are the differences between animism and shamanism? So I was like, really throwing it out there. But it's funny. I will not use that word now. I won't even write it. Like, she's it's so much not part of my vocabulary anymore. <laughs> but that's how seductive it is. <laughs> I mean, it just comes in and people, you know, I mean, it, it, it happens to the best of us. And, and I, and that, that's that, that momentary of, of like, oh my God, wait a minute. And then flipping back and then going, now hold on a second. And um, because it's a constant reprogramming. I know. And I think it's been, it's such a popular term. And I've even had these really good, like decolonial conversations with people about it. And at the end of the conversation, they go right back to it and say, well, we can't find a good substitute. And right. shaman just really says what we want to, what we want to say. So you just shake your head and you go, I don't know, like you got to find one. You have to find that different word. And there's a f- quite a few, like I fill a page with with alternative. I looked in so many cultures in Europe. I think I came mm. up with about 45 alternates. And I do not mm. know the page number, but it is in my book. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah so that's uh, that's pretty important. I, I look at it this way. If, you know, I have a girlfriend of mine. Her name her, her name is Valerie. Mm-hmm. And when we when she introduced herself to me, she said, "My name is Valerie. It's not Val. It's not uh, you know anything other than that. <laughs> it's <laughs> Valerie." Right. And mm-hmm. I have girlfriends that uh, are named Valerie and I call Val because that's what they're that's what they they grown up as Val. Yeah. And so that's <laughs> how they identify. And um, and I think that that's a really important thing. If people don't identify as something, then it's the level of privilege of. Uh, imposing that th- that label through convenience, mm-hmm. um, you know, at, because it's you know, it's too much trouble yeah. to learn something different. Yes, and so I, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it, it's 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 amazing how um, you know that that is uh, it takes so much time to reprogram. I know. 
the brain out of uh, that space of convenience and create another way of looking at uh, identifying indigenous medicine people mm-hmm. with their proper name. That's right. I, I, have, a, I have a friend that um, goes back and forth to Peru, and I asked him one day, he said, he was like, oh, the shaman this and the shaman that and the shaman this and the shaman that in Peru. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, what do they call their medicine people in Peru? Mm-hmm. Because shaman's not native to it. Right. And, oh, boy, the, he looked at me like like somebody just smacked him because <laughs> he had he had he himself had never questioned no why or, or he had never questioned how come somebody from Peru is calling themselves a word that's uh from the Evenk tribe in you know in Evenki. Siberia he had never questioned it it yeah. was just you know, kind of a thing. And then when he came back from his next trip in Peru, he was calling Paco this and Paco that. And, you know, and I think. Um, oh, good. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> he, he learned, you know, which was great. But the uh, the powerful, um, I saw his brain just go. Yeah, you know? good. <laughs> because That's the planting it, of seed. Good for you. Yeah, it was yeah. pretty cool. Um, you know, also with the term maestro, the oh, interesting, that, right? That, that word maestro. Oh, my maestro is is teaching me, you know, such and such ways. <laughs> and, and we were sitting uh, the other day, a bunch of girlfriends and I were sitting, and she was talking about her maestro, and I said, you know, maestro is maestro. Wow. Right? I mm-hmm. mean, it's spelled the same. Maestro. It's, and maestro is teacher. But we have maestro, like the maestro of ceremonies. Oh, right. <laughs> right? So it, yeah. it creates a different energy for yes. the person totally. that is the teacher, which mm-hmm. brings in uh, more of an egoic kind of a thing instead of like, this is a teacher that has yes. serious wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of a performer that is showing the wisdom. Good distinction, for sure. So I was just, you know, I wanted to kind of bring that because it was just like, wow. Like we both sat there and looked at each other and went, damn. Yeah. That just happened. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I want to ask you. Oh, can I just say one more thing about that? Yes, please, please. I call it cognitive imperialism. Whoa. Because we're so used to like the English language and the white is right mentality and just making all these assumptions that, you know, white people continue to make the rules. So hmm. that's what we've done with the word shamanism. We've, uh, and it's so embedded, it's such a habit. Everything reverts back to the English language. And cognitive imperialism, I think that's a really good way to describe it. That is so cool. Well, thank you. I th- I'd like to um, ask you about cultural appropriation. Uh, mm-hmm. We all are really familiar about cultural appropriation. Your book um, is is all about aware cultural appropriation awareness and um you know, how to spot it, how to 
unpack it in oneself. And and what what I I'd like for you to share with the listeners and and me is um how how can people begin to heal appropriating mm-hmm. cultures how can people heal the the need or the urgency or the non-recognition of privilege in regards to uh, the uh, uh, the ability or or the um, how yeah just to you, move away from those yeah, modalities how do, how one, yeah how does one heal cultural appropriation in their life yeah as a as a as a white person um, how would that work uh, you know for, People that are uh, BIPOC that are colonized mm-hmm. have a whole you know, very similar path, but it's different. Right. So how can white people, speaking from a white person's perspective to white people, how can white people begin to heal uh, that that cultural appropriation um, that they have uh, that maybe the cultural appropriation trigger. Yeah. That they have to go out and culturally appropriate and excuse it. How can people heal that? How can people begin to yeah. learn how to heal from it and heal it within themselves? Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, I think the first step really is to, you know, take on the project of understanding uh, the true history of what happened in the Americas and the pattern of colonization to understand are you part of the colonizer group or are you part of the colonized group? And so once you understand your positionality in terms of that, you can move forward. You have to know, you have to understand what really happened on Turtle Island and the true history of the genocides and the oppression, the residential schools, um, the 60s scoop, the racial profiling, you know, the embedded racism, how the Canadian-American governments continue to um, oppress and dispossess Indigenous people from their lands. So all of the basic systemic realities that have been going on for 300 years and are ongoing today, and, you know, kind of the um, efforts of the neoliberal sort of middle-class white people to start things like reconciliation, whatever that means, and, you know, these Mm. other ventures that are nowhere near uh, unpacking the settler state to the point where there could even be any kind of dialogue on reconciliation, <clears throat> you know, remediation, returning the lands and so on has to, you know, letting indigenous people, you know, have their sovereignty, not letting, I shouldn't have used that word, um, supporting First Nations people to have sovereign say over their own lands and govern governance. So all these things have to be understood. And I think once the person gets that, then they see how cultural appropriation is just a continuation of the same colonial agenda. So it becomes like a neo-colonial aspect. And, and you know, at that point, nobody's going to want to really involve themselves because they understand the, the history. So I think that's really, really important. That's a way in. 
Mm. Um, and just to, you know, understand that you do have your own traditions to find. Uh, you don't have to take from First Nations. One of my chapters is entitled, Don't Go Where You Are Not Wanted. And mm. I do think we have to listen to the critiques of, of First Nations. We have to understand also, it isn't just an opinion. These are not just opinions people are throwing out there. Right. First Nations or not native or non-native. You know, mm. this cultural preservation has been, you know, put into actual law. We have the U- UN Declaration of Indigenous Peoples, where First Nations came from all over the world together to the UN, and they made this huge set of, you know, laws and principles to ensure that uh, cultural identity, cultural traditions were protected. So it's it's like almost in law, right? And there's been other declarations made by uh, Chief Arville Looking Horse and uh, the Lakota people that is the preservation of their own traditions and how anyone not of their communities, uh, they will um, denounce anyone else that is using Lakota IK. So there's been a lot of declarations come out. There's been a lot of, you know, legislation come out. And even when it comes to fine art, we don't have it in Canada yet, but in the U.S., if a non-native person is using indigenous symbols and motifs in their visual art, it's actually illegal. Wow. I mean, we need to get that in Canada happening, but in the U.S., if you see art that you don't know for sure, say you're at the Santa Fe market or whatever, you're not sure if it's actually by an indigenous artist or artisan, you know, you can report it and they look into it and they can find that person, you know, up to, I don't know, thousands and thousands of dollars and they're like completely stopped from, you know, producing any more. So cultural appropriation is a very uh, serious and real uh, problem in the world. And uh, identity theft, which is, uh, you know, it's like on a continuum. Mm. So that like it's at the far end. So that's the white people. The harm that white people do can go, you know, can't be maybe not too bad, right? All the way up to actual, by not too bad. I mean, like they've got a pair of moccasins. So what, right? Hmm. Or maybe even a drum, you know, that's probably okay too. Or so what, they smudge in their home, you know, it's probably not too bad. But the other end of the continuum is, um, you know, taking a Native identity, giving yourself a Native name, you know, running ceremonies for money, and, you know, te- you know, spreading Indigenous knowledge to other white people. So you've actually created a Native identity for yourself. That's the farthest end of the continuum, and that is the most... Um, reprehensible. So just to understand that this isn't just a conversation, this is not just an opinion. These are um, these are practices that are about to become illegal. I think at some point they will, a consortium or some kind of organization will make identity theft illegal. I mean, it should be illegal. It should be punishable by law. Yeah, we we get into conversations. Thank you. We get into conversations about um, smudging and how uh, white sage is is being um, starting to be really threatened because people, uh, capitalists of white sage go in and then 
you know, they'll go into protective areas and wipe out <laughs> you know, um, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of white sage mm -hmm. and they won't do it in a in a sacred way. No. And it's done in a very um, non-sacred way. And so um, people are starting to lean into the idea of exploring what their ancestors burned uh, for smoke cleansing in their homes. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that that is a really, you know, it's a small thing, but it can also be really, really, really powerful uh, when implemented in the home. I've personally let go of buying any more sage or Palo Santo or anything like that and, mm -hmm. and stay close to resins and um, ethnically, ethically sourced resins and, um, and, you know, rosemary and paley. Yes, that's like that. such a good point. Oh, yeah. It's so, it's not that hard to find out, you know, and you can even feel things that feel really right to you. I use rose petals for some reason. Right. It just yeah. feels so good to me. It's like it's the flower of the heart. I know yeah. they were in Europe. I know that my Scots Gaelic ancestors had a connection to the rose. And so it's rose petals. That's what I love to use in ceremony. That's beautiful. So you just, you can find it. It isn't that uh, difficult. Yeah, absolutely. So do you have any teachings for us um, as we as we start to wind down this really amazing conversation? <laughs> oh, oh, just find your own indigeneity. And that word is not even a good word for white people. It's, you know, we're kind of co-opting it when we use it. So no, no, I don't want to use that. So find your own ancestral wisdom. There it is. Yeah. And in the day of uh, the uh, internet and so many resources, it's really not that hard. You know, you can do a lot of um, research, you can have your own DNA tested. If you want to go that route, find out who your actual ancestors are and some people are limited into finding that out they for some reason they don't um, feel drawn to knowing their own ancestors maybe there was too much harm um, mm -hmm. they have other reasons for not wanting to know their own ancestors I understand that but there's other ways maybe animism might be a good path to take or druid traditions or something more general like paganism you know, as long as it's um, what you feel is authentic to your own self and you're reconnecting uh, to the natural world and just steer clear of appropriating. It's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my teaching. <laughs> Thank you, Peggy. So this concludes uh, the major part of our podcast and this really juicy subject of um, you know the harm of uh, cultural theft, cultural, um, like you said, cult cultural identity mm -hmm. theft, and it's it's a really harmful thing. And the more awareness is that is brought to it, I think the more people will be not fearful of talking about it. Yeah, and um. 
So thank you for doing the work that you're doing to bring awareness to it because it is rooted in um, white supremacy and racism and yes, and it's it's un it's unhealthy. Yes, and and all of its healthiness, uh, the guise of healthiness, it really is toxic and unhealthy, and and I appreciate you bringing awareness to that. Uh, for your people and for my people uh, to protect us. And I think that that is a really powerful way of using your white privilege for good as a way to protect the indigenous communities. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you for inspiring me and so many others with your amazing work. And (laughs) every day you're doing something amazing that I'm just, you know, it's just so inspiring and I absolutely love what you're doing. Oh, thank you. And I love your new podcast. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) You're our first official guest. Oh, fabulous. Thank you so much. I'm so honored. (laughs) (laughs) And um, this brings us to the gratitude shout out of the week, uh, which I grant to you. Um, You've got You've got an interesting uh, mix of the gratitude shout out and the cocotazo of the week. So, yes. uh, so go ahead and take it, Peggy. Uh, now, this isn't the call out one, is it? No. Yes, the but... shout out and the call out. <laughs> oh, the shout out. Okay. Uh, oh, I'm really grateful. There's a wonderful book being published in the UK called Dangerous Women. And uh, I have an essay. There's 50 women have come together from all over the world. And we're really, uh, it's a big fuck you to the patriarchy. And so Mm. women have been so um, repressed from, you know, using that anger voice and being recognized as intellectual. So those those are kind of the two things that um, are going on in this wonderful new book. So there's a crowdfunding project happening and it's... um, uh, called Dangerous Women is the name of it. And the website is https colon slash slash and then there's no www. There's not, that's not in there. And then it's unbound.com and then slash and then books slash Dangerous Women. I can put the link on them. Um, I'll give you the awesome. link to put with the podcast if you like. Absolutely. And <laughs> it's going to be an amazing book. I look forward to it coming out. It really does. Uh, we were talking about it before uh, the, uh, recording, and it, it it sounds amazing. Yeah, it's going to be really fabulous. I like and how it's women from all over the world. It, uh, women are rising up. Oh, yes. my goodness. <laughs> oh, I yeah. love it. I love it. <laughs> and the cocotazo of the week goes to... Yes, thousands of people are jumping on this uh, Métis sort of like bandwagon. They're getting these special cards and saying they have First Nations affiliation and so on. And um, there's been companies even issuing fake DNA results, if you can imagine. So there's Um. this strange new movement in Canada. And there has been in the States with the whole Cherokee phenomena. All the so many white people saying they're Cherokee. It's mm-hmm. exactly the same in Canada, but they're calling themselves Métis. 
So oh, wow. big call out for that nonsense. And I, it's like a shortcut to earth connectivity, but really in a really wrong way. <laughs> that is not the way to be doing it. And, um, you know, they also get benefits in some way from the Canadian government with these little fake status, status cards that they're getting printed out. They don't have to pay sales tax or there's anyway, there's some other benefit they're getting. So it's a really harmful phenomena. And it, you know, invisibilizes again, the real first, the, you know, authentic First Nations in Canada. And, you know, it's demeaning to those that are truly Indigenous. So again, it's white people uh, pretending they're Indigenous in this huge new way strange new phenomena it's just been happening in the last 10 years and this wonderful scholar he just came out with a book on it it just came out a month ago i'm so desperate to read it it's the most amazing book it's called um distorted descent which is kind of weird distorted descent white claims to indigenous identity by daryl laro and he's a professor at a university in Montreal. Anyway, I'll make sure that the link uh, gets to you, Tanya. You may want to stick it, you know, on the podcast or something like that. I'm looking forward to it. We're, we're definitely, we have um, some building a resource list on GDI with regards to different ways of getting books to bring awareness to how to uh show up in this movement and in a way that's educated and well-grounded. So that's pretty pretty (laughs) awesome. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Is there um, any more wisdom that you would like to share with us before we close our podcast? I'm just so grateful, Tanya. Thank you so much for having me as a guest for your amazing podcast. I'll just throw my website in there. It's www.stonecirclepress.com, all one word. Absolutely. And if you get a chance to get on your computer today, order Peggy's book, uh, Ancient Spirit Rising. It's an amazing book that will help you unpack your shit. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. If you're a cultural appropriator (laughs) or if you know someone actively culturally appropriating, you can gift this book, right? You can gift the book to them and just say, you know, here you go. This (laughs) is something you need. (laughs) This is something for you to read. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Peggy. And thank you, GDI. And thank you, listeners. And um, we look forward to bringing you a wonderful podcast next week and we'll see you when we see you and if we don't see you we'll see you